opportunity coming into the studio to bring you another episode of the What's Up Cuz podcast. I am Dr. David Brock, co-host of What's Up Cuz, and I'm in the studio with the one and only always ready, informative, intelligent, beautiful, Nubian black queen, Dr. Sharon, my cuz. What's up, cuz? What's up, cuz? You done added some things. I was oh, trying. My <laughs> I was trying. I was trying to think of some good adjectives <laughs> for the day or whatever else. Thank I see. you so much. But as always, you're looking wonderful. Thank you. How are you doing? Well, you know what? It's, uh, I, I'm, I'm actually approaching 60. I'm 60 in about 12 more days. So I've been on these 14 days of thanks. I've been giving thanks for everything and p- for people. And so uh, Monday or the other day, I gave thanks for my beautiful wife, Melissa. And that was my post about giving thanks for her and her love in my life. Today, the next day, I gave thanks for snack food. So I told everybody it wasn't going to be all serious. So I gave thanks for snack food, the almighty snack food. Thank God for the chili cheese fries and, oh the, and the, you know, snack food that blesses your life in so many you ways. You know you love and your snacks, too. I tell you, oh there's nothing goodness. like the snack da- snack food dance you do in the cupboard when you look and see your favorite cup, but cupcake or cookie. You know, you do that little ooh jiggle. So I, I talked about the snack food. And then today I gave thanks for it. I know you're not on Facebook, but I gave thanks for my family and my friends and people in my life. And I want to honor you and thank you for just who you are in my life and the blessing you've been to my life. You are an amazing woman, uh, an amazing person, an amazing employer, a visionary. But more than that, I'm thankful that I get to call you my friend. Oh, that is amazing. Well, I am amazed. And um, thank you so much for sharing that. And I think that you and I have been knowing each other for a very long time. And I just think you bring out the best in people. And so I just thank you so much for the space that you're in. And you don't look more than 35. So, you know, I don't know. You shouldn't tell people your age. Come on now. (laughs) (laughs) They get confused. What? You're 61. So so congratulations on your upcoming birthday. Thank you. It's it's really a milestone. And unfortunately, in this day in which we live, we know we've seen the news in our own city and, and just around the country. We see so much that is happening in our community, in Uh, the problems and the situations that face black and brown people. And every day I realize that it is a blessing to be here. And so, you know, I told somebody today, they said, how are you? I said, hey, I'm above ground. So that's the beginning of a good day. A good day. You know, and I tell people all the time, I have good days and better days. So the worst I can have is a good day. Mm, That's good. You know, but we face so many challenges and so many things uh, that are going on that affect our community. And we know that recently, I believe it was on the 29th, or so of June, uh, we had something that happened in our nation that I believe is really going to bring change in the lives of black and brown people. And that was the fact that the uh, U.S. Supreme Court's decision to overrule affirmative action. Mm-hmm. And they said that universities can no longer use race as a specific basis for granting admission. And and so I know that struck you, uh, an individual that believes in education, and we both you know, know knowledge is power. Uh, and you just recently uh, finished a second document. 
doctorate. And so I know you believe wholeheartedly in education. I know your daughter just celebrated graduating from college a few weeks ago or months ago or so. And I don't know whether or not this subject our people really, really know the ramifications of this subject. And so I know that we have some guests that are going to be on with us today. And I know I didn't ask you this in advance, but but how, why did this hit you so? Why was this so gripping for you? Well, you know, I think I've been looking at what's happening to this America, particularly as it pertains to black folks um, for quite a while. And I just see this sort of backsliding, if you will, of safety nets that have really helped us uh, bridge some of the divides that have happened because of the over 400 um, year history of blacks in this country or or members of the African diaspora. And so it's, you know, once again, um, something else happening. But what I wanted to think about is this happened, but how do we... Um, as a people come together to think about how do we move forward in spite of or despite the decision, what are some offerings that we can give as professionals, as educators about how do we not move to despair, but really celebrate the hope in all of this and really wanted to bring some scholars together to really help us think through in our audience to hear that this is not the end. In fact, it can be the beginning of something different because we know that race was not the only deciding factor. When I think about our former president, President Barack Obama, he went to two Ivy Leagues and he's certainly darn smart. And so it was beyond his race. And so um, we tend to just look at things in isolation. But we look at the wholeness of a person. You can't go to Harvard if you just just show up just as a black person. You also have to be pretty smart. And so I want folks to know you are smart. You are in your skin as a black person. Very, very smart. We have some um, fabulous scholars that are all of the African diaspora and they are very, very smart. So we just wanted to be able to center this conversation is how do we move forward no matter the decision that happened um, just a few weeks ago. That's that's great. That's setting the stage for where we're going. And I, I was doing some some preparation work, and I just want to put this out there that affirmative action was first introduced in 1961 through the presidential executive order. And since that time, it has been an important tool in higher education to help combat systemic racism that we know is alive and well yes. everywhere, you know. And so affirmative action were policies that colleges put in uh, place to promote promote equal opportunities for the underrepresented uh, underrepresented students, if you will, uh, in consideration of the admit, uh, admission process. So I know, as you said, we got some great guests and I loved what you said and just echo that and ditto that, that uh, our color is not just it. Not at all. We, we are more than the skin we're in. I so, love you the know, skin that I'm yeah, in, too. I do, yes. too. I mean, it's some beautiful skin. Beautiful skin. You know, it comes in all, see, it comes in all shapes and all colors. Yes. And so, I mean, it's light skin, brown skin, but, you know, but, I hey, love, yes. listen, I love us as a people. And so we have some great scholars who are here with us today, and they are in their own right, as you said, some intelligent uh, brothers and sisters of the African diaspora. So, Doc, why don't you take a moment, uh, and we're going to bring our guest on the line why don't you take a moment and just introduce our, our guest, if you will? Well, I'm going to have them speak more about themselves, but I will tell our audience who's with us. And then from there, I will have them um, elaborate on who they are. So we have Dr. Irvin Dyer, who um, is a, a colleague and a friend. He's certainly um, somebody that I've known 
for a while. And he was actually someone who helped me write my book. And so just a lovely um, individual. Then we have Dr. Um, Sherry Simmons Horton, and she is a wonderful uh, colleague of mine that I met. I told her she's a sister from another mister, but she's this absolutely wonderful. She's a scholar and a professor um, at uh, the University of New Hampshire, and she'll um, introduce more about who she is. And then we have Dr. Evan Destin. He is, um, he's been with our audience before. Um, he is a scholar and his work um, the center around James Baldwin. And so we um, really love hearing him talk about James Baldwin, but he's a sociologist and um, he's an educator. He's helping young people who are um, in middle school kind of move and negotiate that space. And so, and he's also a board member of a second chance um, incorporated as, as well as Dr. Um, Dyer. So I'm just so delighted to have them. So Dr. Dyer, why don't you just tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Yes, absolutely. So I started my professional career um, working as a journalist. Um, I came to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, where I covered race and African-American culture, um, getting to know a lot of the people who were pushing for change in this community. Um, I think that's how I got introduced to you as well, um, Dr. McDaniel. I heard of your work because um, one of my colleagues sat right next to me, and I think she covered your organization. So I certainly knew of the work that you were doing, Strengthening Families, creating community change. Um, and then while here, I had a chance to get connected to the University of Pittsburgh. So I went back to school um, and earned a degree in sociology uh, with a focus on looking at African-American, African immigrants and how they settle into American spaces. Um, and from that role, I've done some teaching and some writing, looking at the broader African diaspora community. And so it's really great to be with you today and to engage this conversation about what this decision means for our community. Thank you, Dr. Dyer. And Dr. Sherry, why don't you introduce yourself? Well, hello, and thank you for having me, Dr. Brock and Dr. McDaniel. Um, I am Dr. Sherry Simmons Horton, and I am an assistant professor at the University of New Hampshire. Um, I um, come into academia following about over 25 years of experience working in the child welfare system in Texas, in the state of Texas. And uh, my research now is informed by that, um, by that practice experience, where I really try to address racial disparities um, of black families, particularly uh, black girls who are system involved, to really understand their stories um, their narratives to help inform change with regard to um, racial disparities, systemic um, barriers for them. Um, but my ultimate goal is to really be able to, um, you know, regenerate and preserve the Black family um, one, one study at a time, and hopefully that my research has impact. So I look to try to empower families so they don't need to be involved in systems. So thank you again for having me here. Super excited about the conversation. Excellent. We're so happy to have you as well, and thank you for your work. Dr. Even Destin, why don't you talk to us about who you are? Yes, well, thank you for that wonderful intro. Um, my name is Dr. Even Destin. I am an educator and also an independent researcher. Um, I taught middle school, uh, but I'm currently now teaching high school, and I am also currently instru an instructor for the African American History course. Uh, that's been much under fire, but though not the AP version of it. Um, I've also, um, as you know, as a researcher, I've been centering my work on James Baldwin and um, 
currently wanting to understand what lessons we can learn. Very different from Begin Again by uh, Professor Eddie's blog book, but I'm hoping to make a contribution there. And I'm really happy to uh, to be here. I'm also just wanting to say that I uh, I'm a descendant of Haitians. You know, so as a you know descendant of Haitian immigrants, it's a uh, it, it's meaningful for me to talk about race and to know as a as an island that kind of you know um, ended slavery. It's a uh, it's a really important issue. Uh, to see that affirmative action, um, trying to make some sort of remedy to such a situation to see if we can do better to do better. Thank you. Oh, excellent. Thank you so much. And we really just, again, honor all three of you for being here. So we want to get started in asking sort of our questions. And and so I'll start, Dr. Brock, if you don't mind. I wanted to ask each of you, you know, when you heard um, about the decision last week, where were you? Um, when you heard about the decision and what were your thoughts? And I'll start with you, Dr. Sherry. Um, I was actually working from home and um, I think that I, I got the messaging from from social media um, because I you know, just I don't think I was watching TV at the moment, but I got a CNN post um, or alert. And um, I, I won't say that I was surprised. Um, but I was definitely shaking my head and had to step away from work for a little bit just because, you know, it just really um, seemed like a um, just such a slap in the face, if you will, to all of what has been done, um, you know, through Thurgood Marshall and, and you know, all of the all of the work that was done prior to his to, to him being on the Supreme Court. It just it was just it hurt I'll just say that it 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 hurt in a very personal way. I wouldn't probably have the education I have now had not been for, um, you know, affirmative action programming. So, um, yeah, it was hurtful. Thank you. Yeah. And I, and I, and I'm thinking about the fact that you're in the university setting. I'm sure that that probably struck a, a very different chord, right? I mean, I'm not in academia, but certainly have been a beneficiary of such programs. Um, I went to a predominantly white institution, Penn State University, and so while I was there on scholarship, I'm sure that there were some um, other offerings to black students that I may not have known about, but the fact of the matter is that there was an office that I could go to as a black student to ask for assistance, if you will. So I'm sure at the university level that probably struck you in a very different way. So go ahead, Doc. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. No, absolutely. I agree. And and so, Dr. Destin, where were you when you first heard and what was your reaction? Yeah, I was working with a colleague on a project um, that morning. And much like Dr. Simmons Horton mentioned, I was getting a lot of signaling from the networks and news networks that it was going to go this way. Um, So I wasn't surprised, um, especially in a post Roe v. Wade, you know, uh, world that um, we're having this you know, huge um, sort of swing in the conservative direction, extreme conservative direction. And um, it just was distracting us. Uh, we we just had to have a conversation. Um, my colleague was African-American and uh, it just was, it just seemed to be like an insult to injury that uh, Justice Clarice Thomas is on there um, having to have gone along with the, uh, the, the, the decision being struck. But, but also it's interesting that of course the dissenting opinion, Kintaji, Justice Kataji Brown, response, you know, not an African-American woman. And just having to kind of come to grips with that as an educator. And, you know, I work in a private school, so in a private space, um, thinking about, though we don't have mandates like affirmative action when it comes to like, you know, young age, younger age students, but 
the how it will inform practices um, and shape the uh, the demographic of, of, of not just my school, but just generally across the board, you know, when it comes to education or any private um, education um, that's um, wanting to implement such practices uh, to try to help um, equal the playing field. But, um, but yeah, it was a, it was a blow and I had to, uh, we, we had conversations to kind of try to reconcile with that and to see what that means. Yeah. I'm thinking about the implications that you're just really advancing. So we had it, had these decisions that were at higher ed, but also just thinking about that, having that affirmative action in place for schools like yours, I'm sure they would take some signals saying, well, we should be thinking about this as well. And so what will that mean as we move forward, knowing that um, young people trying to get to the the private schools can be sometimes even more onerous than getting to college, right? And uh, because the the competition level with some of these um, private schools um, to then have that leg up to get into some of these elite schools. So that that's very interesting that you raise that issue because I do believe we'll see that trickling down down effect. So thank yep. you for sharing that. And Dr. Dyer, what about you? Where were you? What were the, your thoughts? Yeah, so I was I was home remote working as well and um I saw the um the flash come across CNN um and much like um Dr. Horton, Sherry Horton um I wasn't surprised but I was I was hurt, right? It was really, it was really like a kick in the stomach. Um, and because of what Dr. Dustin just mentioned, we knew um, that we're dealing with a conservative court. Um, I was really shocked by the Roe decision. But given some of the news about um, the allegations of um, the conservative court members and their associations with big money friends and donors um, and perhaps having an agenda. So I wasn't surprised by the decision, but it made it no less painful. And so the first thing that I did was reach out, you know, to my brothers and sisters, because we were all young children when affirmative action first passed, and we've seen the benefits in our own lives. Um, So the first thing that I did was reach out to my siblings and just say, can you guys believe where we are now, right? Just to share um, and have someone that we hold each other up, you know, just try to move through that that decision and what it means for my nieces, my nephews, you know, the young people that I work with every day. And, um, yeah, just to try to get a grip on it and just set ourselves for what's to come. Right. That is so much like you reaching out to others because you're so selfless. And, and so that doesn't surprise me that you reached out to see how other people were doing and just really trying to glean their thoughts. So thank you all for that. And I know that you all talked about, um, uh, justice, uh, Kataji Jackson Brown's uh, dissent. I know Dr. Brock is going to take us into the next question about um, what you thought about her her dissent. So, Doc, I'll t- have, turn it over to you. Well, yeah, thank you, Doc. I was listening uh, to all of you all and where you were, and it's interesting because it made me think where was I, and I was at, also working in the office. And when I saw it a few minutes later. Um, my my wife called and she said, did you see CNN? And I'm like, yeah, I'm looking at it now. And I, I too was kind of shocked. And I'll be honest with our listening audience, I did not until uh, being offered uh, this subject matter for the podcast began to read through the dissent of Justice um, Katanji <clears throat> Brown, her dissent, uh, Jackson's dissent. And um, 
I began to realize that it it really has ramifications that are really far reaching. Yes. And I think that there are some of us that would uh, probably not think that the ramifications were so far reaching. And so with that being said, we wanted to focus our conversation just a little bit around or a lot of it, as my kids would say, a lot of it. We want <laughs> we want to focus around this 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 descent. And and she said so many wonderful things. So I want to go to you, uh, Dr. Irv, if you would allow me to come to you as a journalist. We know you're a journalist. As a journalist and an educator, if you had to write a story for the many young men or even young women that may be coming behind upcoming scholars who might feel that they will not have the opportunity to enter a university based on this decision, what would that story be? What would you write? What would you say to them? Wow. So, I, you know, I thought a lot about this. I think, um, I think the story might be, you know, it ain't over. <laughs> uh-huh. And that we really have to um, wage a campaign of just continuing to inform our community and our young folk that the structures of oppression have not gone away, right? And we cannot be lulled to sleep thinking just because we've had some advancement, and we have, um, that we can rest on that. So I think the story for me as a journalist will be continue to encourage um, socially and politically conscious journalists and writers to talk about systems of oppression because they have not, they have not disappeared, right? Um, we can have individual examples of achievement and advancement, but too many of our people remain sort of um, held down, right, and um, traumatized by um, just systematic structures that mean people can't move ahead, can't feed their families, can't get into schools, can't get access to health care, um, have denied opportunities for better housing, um, generational wealth, and things like that. And so I think the story for me is, folks, it ain't over. That's good. I love that. <laughs> I, I wrote that down. I don't know. I'm gonna use that somewhere. I might yeah, have to preach really about it, Doctor. But I won't even give. You, I won't give you no credit. I'm gonna tell you that now. I might use your subject. <laughs> and I have to say this as well. So that's that's one story, right? I think the other story um, that I want to draw from is um, it's and it's a bit connected, right? It's Marvin Gates. Tell me what's going on, right? Uh. So I remember being a young man and reading the story of these three young men from these sort of under-resourced communities in New Jersey. And what they did was come together and form a pack, right, where they supported each other. And each of them, through this mutual support, um, realized their goals of becoming physicians and a dentist, right? So I think that's the other story, that we have to look at how we can encourage our young people to keep going, to support each other, to continue to aim high, right, so that they can continue to move forward in the face of these systems of oppression and let them know that they can't give up. So those are the two stories. It ain't over. And also that we have to sort of rally together now and just um, lift each other up. There's a phrase that we use in my fraternity, each one teach one. And so um, we have to do that. So yeah, it's time. That's excellent. Absolutely excellent. And so I want to go to you, Dr. Sherry, and I want you just thinking about the work that we have done in the um, academic space around lifting up the voice of black women. 
And when you read um, Justice Katanji Jackson Brown's dissent, what were some thoughts? Because I had some really, I mean, I was like, whoa, she, like, she laid it in. But what were your thoughts um, and what stood out to you about her in her dissent? Well, you know, um, so, so much, but I feel like she took it back to history and then she took it to the streets, right? <laughs> um, one of the things that she said that I, I was like, it was very powerful. I mean, super powerful. I was like, ooh, a lot of times just really having some visceral reactions to what she was saying. Um, one thing she says is that no one benefits from ignorance, you know? Yes. Um, and she does a lot of not just providing this like very strong historical context and contradictions of, of this, of the, of the, um, majority in this, in, in this decision, but she really does a lot of calling out and then she does a lot of calling in, Yes. Um, you know, so it was, it was, um, it just took me through a range of different emotions because in the end she gets into talking about um, the collective and the need to persist. Um, it's just, it, it was just, it, it was almost like a rally and call at the end. I, I guess that's the way I heard it. And so um, this, I was, I was, I, I appreciated that you provided this to me about like a, a, a little over a week ago and um, it is now going to be part of my policy class next semester. Oh, that's and, excellent. You know, I teach undergraduate and graduate policy students. I mean, it really gets into just about, it talks about so much policy, so much impact that social work students need to know. And I'm at a PWI and um, met with oftentimes resistance to um, really um, accept and receive mm. <laughs> this history, you yes. know, um, people don't think about the impact on housing. They don't think about the impact on poverty. They don't think about the impact on structural racism. They don't think about how, if you don't have an education and you don't have the money and you have to pay, I mean, loan forgiveness and so much other stuff wrapped into all of this that I think that, that white students need to know as well, you know, because at some point, um, our allyship has to, uh, include, that population as well, but we first need to re recognize that um, as black people, even before there was an affirmative action policy, even before there was a civil rights movement, even before there was the end to slavery, black people were persisting. So we'll get through this and we, and we just have to keep moving forward and use whatever platforms we have, mine is in the classroom and in, um, in, in the research, that's my platform and that's what I use. Um, you know, collaborating with the greats that are part of this panel today, that's that we, we, we have to keep going. You know, we just don't have the luxury. And I have seven grandchildren, six of which are girls. Wow. So, um, you know, the, that's who I'm thinking about. And one who's a teenager who's got maybe about four years before she starts college. Um, she wants to go to an HBCU, but what if she wanted other options? You know, um, I don't want her to have to have to be limited because of her race or her gender. Um, so, so the only, mm -hmm. and, and this, this legislation has served to divide, um, divide, you know, Asians and black people, yes. you know, it's, it's divisive. And I'm like, I know the Asian population at large cannot be possibly thinking this is going to help them. It's not going to help them either, <laughs> you know? Um, is going to help primarily, if not almost exclusively, white women. 
Absolutely. And, and that's who it's helped. I mean, I think that people re- don't recognize that the affirmative action strategies of this country, when it um, was first put in place, actually white women benefited the most. But we don't talk about that. And so I think, you know, Doc, thank you for bringing that up. And I, and I just want to also say, because, you know, you and I will be on the phone and say, no, she didn't. Which you're not gonna do, and so when I read the thing, I said, "Which, which, which she said, which you coming soon." Which she said, "Which you're not gonna do is be ignorant to the public policies of this country that's led to why this uh, law was, in fact, necessary." So, thank you so much for that. So, Doc, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you. I mean, that's so that you guys are, I'm just sitting here just taking it all in and nodding and forgetting that I'm a part of this podcast. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just sitting here like, yeah, I'm nodding my head and like, yeah, that was some good stuff right there. <laughs> taking notes. But again, uh, this is such a powerful, powerful uh, subject that we're dealing with. And so, um, Dr. Sherry, we're, you were talking and I know we just ended with you, but I, I want to come back to you for a minute because uh, I, I believe that that some people uh, believe that this decision around affirmative action primarily affects um, educational opportunities. However, in preparing for this podcast, I was reading and shared a note with Doc that that data in 2019 showed that the median wealth for a black family was around twenty four thousand dollars. And that same number was about eight times more for white families at $188,000. So tell me, just take a moment, if you will, how do you see this? um, And this might be a question that one of you others may want to jump in on as well. But how do you see this decision affecting more than just education? Yeah, so you can't, um, you know, the the likelihood of, of, of receiving a a good education relies on typically, you know, certain societal factors, um, you know, having stable home, having stable employment, those who had the best employment have at the very least a high school education and better even a college education and graduate degrees. Um, and so if you are a poor family and you're say a poor single parent family, the likelihood of risk of being involved, say, in the child welfare system, which is, you know, my wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when that child enters into the foster care system, if they're black, they're more likely to end up in a residential treatment facility. And then they won't probably finish high school. And then they probably won't, even though college is provided to foster kids for free, they probably won't get access to it because they will have run away or something. All the trauma. So it's a it's it's a it's a far reaching impact that's just about those who actually those people of color who actually apply to go to college um at any of these institutions that would would support affirmative action it 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 begins to be a bigger issue of of how you can or cannot achieve this quote-unquote american dream because there's a series of things that have to happen for you to be able to achieve that and there's Mm -hmm. constant barriers that get in the way of that you know um so that's that's how I see an example of how these structures are interconnected and how barriers, there's always a ceiling for us. And that ceiling is really very low in terms of what we're given to be able to get, have the opportunity to get that American dream. Yes. So, so true. I I see you shaking your head, Dr. Dustin, you want to add anything to that? I saw you nodding in agreement with what Dr. Horton was sharing. You got something to add to that? Yeah, I agree. Um, You know, I think about, 
you know, at a private school, um, the number of families who, who don't fit the profile of, uh, of a, of a traditional family that tends to be white male, um, who comes from, you know, a background of means who probably live in an area in a better area, zip codes, you know, all have an impact on one's opportunities to not just access, but also for preparation for school, for preparation, for study, for a type of preparation that people are familiar with. Doesn't mean it's better education, just familiar with tends to be, um, you know, um, something that creates an invitation or a, a welcoming sort of feeling to a group, you know, to a person. And I think that, um, that, yeah, it, the economics of it all, um, is wide sweeping because of that, you know? And so I'm thinking about those who have to prove their weight for a standard that it just happens to be a standard at the school, but happens to be one that was historically kind of grounded in the troubled history of America. Mm-hmm. And so I see, you know, and that's what I see. And that's what I, um, that's what's really um, kind of resonating with me when I, when I'm hearing uh, these impacts economically. Yeah, absolutely. And what I want to just add to that um, really quickly is I think one of the implications as well is this decision sort of amplifies, right? A conversation that gives justification to um, being able to discriminate, right? It sort of legitimizes and amplifies that we have people are now empowered to discriminate. Yes. And I think the repercussions of that, we will start to feel that in the boardrooms and with policymakers who are not as open-minded as perhaps they should be. Um, and I think that's the real damage, damage as well. It just becomes this factor because of, because this conversation is now out there and this court has weighed in and given a legitimacy, right? People can stand behind this decision um, to promote and reproduce inequality. And that's, that's really, really dangerous. Um, it takes us back to a place where we have worked so hard to try to move away from. Right. And it's, and it's cloaked in this, I agree with everything you just said, and it's cloaked in this, um, in, in this illusion of, of of um colorblind colorblindness, right? So 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 we have to be really careful to listen to these really soft benign language. The soft benign language is you know we're being colorblind. We don't want people to see color. You know that's how our country was built. Was to <laughs> yes. was that's the structure it was built on. That's the house it was built on, if you will. That's the plantation it was built on is to see color. So you know to exactly to Dr. Dyer's point is that you know when we when you see that language used in the dissent um where he, she talks about you know the colorblindness argument that the majority makes and it's all you know a farce and it's all an illusion it's all to perpetuate that um discrimination that dr dyer mentioned that's exactly that's right. right i mean i just think you know each of you are ta- talked about this whole idea of you know this we, we have this you know, revisionist history, we have people kind of coming up with their own ideas of what this means. And then we have all of this, you know, in certain parts of the country, we're not allowed to even talk about certain things. And Dr. Dustin, as you talked about in the schools, the, the number of books that are banned, we already see this 
reversion back to what has this America has been made of. And so, Dr. Dyer, as you talked about this whole notion that this now gives permission, it will amplify the voices. There have been those that, you know, since George Floyd was murdered, they felt compelled to have this consciousness, but many corporations did not even follow up on what they said they were doing. Now, at this point, what would be the reason to do so? Right. Mm-hmm. And so you have these people who now have been empowered to just be who they've been and not necessarily see that um, diversity brings out so much because it's not only diversity about race and gender, but it's place. You know, when I think about the people I talk about who, who, who grew up in the middle of Oklahoma, who grows up in the middle of Oklahoma that's black and that I'm like, and it's a wonderful experience. And I like to hear well, what did that place bring for you? And so it's not only that, but when we don't get a chance to see that in our institutions, um, it really um, creates this, you know, Dr. Sherry is talking this definite of really understanding who we are as that holistic being, if you will. We're just going to continue to put you to, to a side. We're going to continue to marginalize you and mon- minoritize you and you stay over there. Thank you. But if it comes to your black body, we'll use you because I love what um, Justice Katani said. She said we could use your body. So it's OK to use our bodies, but not our our brains in the boardroom. Right. And so we are. Um, um, we, we have a purpose, but it's not for us to use our brains. And mm-hmm. so I really, really appreciate this conversation. But speaking about brains, um, you know, Dr. Destin, um, you are a first generation um, American from your Haitian family and you grew up um, here. You were born and raised and your parents really instilled this notion that education was the difference maker. And you decided to go to an HBCU for your undergraduate work. But I'm curious about how that, how attending an HBCU informed what would happen as you moved on to graduate schools and PWIs. How did that, uh, attending that HBCU prepare you for what you would experience because we know the politics of getting a PhD, particularly at a PWI. So talk to us about that experience. Oh, it was, you know, it was essential. It was essential for me to have gone to HBC, to an HBCU like Morehouse College. Um, and even how I came to it first, how I came to Morehouse um, was in and of itself indicative of why I needed to go there. Um, I had applied to a lot of the um, Ivy League schools among neighboring flagship schools in my um, my state of my uh, state of Florida, and um, I had did, I had taken some college courses when I was in high school, and I did not realize uh, no one had told me. And I, I'm a first generation college student, high school student, so none of my parents had actually completed their. Uh, their education, their uh, Haitian immigrants, um, they had not done formal education entirely until later in their uh, later in later years, and so I really didn't have that assistance or at least that um, foresight of doing, knowing them how to get a, how to work the college system in a way that would help me place me in a better place. And so what I did was I would apply to these schools and I would get these rejection notices, thinking that maybe because I wasn't that smart to take the SATs, I must have taken it SATs, ACTs, maybe like ten times or something like that. I, I even took up another job at uh, at um, at Royal Caribbean uh, at the at the um, data entry offices just to pay the applications, um, only to be rejected year after year. And so, um, by chance of uh, me watching an interview about Spike Lee, uh, I noticed people cared about a school named Morehouse. I had not never I had never heard of it. And then when I um, brought it to the one black 
guidance counselor in my high school, she was already tired of having to, you know, fill out applications just for the the PWIs. And it was like, oh, you're going to this school. You will go to Morehouse. (laughs) Um, And so I applied to Morehouse and I didn't get in. Hmm. Here's what Morehouse did. They called me and they told me why. They said that, why are you applying as a freshman? You have these college courses. You're supposed to be applying as a transfer. You know, you have 72 hours of credits and stuff. um, Or you will not be able to apply as a, as a freshman. You have to apply as a transfer. So they encouraged me to apply as a transfer. And the next year I got in, it was the only school I applied to. And I got in because I couldn't believe that for all those years, I think it was like two, three years of just straight applying that no one would bother to just call and say, why are you applying it this way? They were happy to take my 70, 80, 90 bucks per application every time, but mm-hmm. Morehouse didn't, mm-hmm. you know, having to have gone to Morehouse was a game changer for me. That then in turn um, prepared me for, believe it or not, a life of a journey that I would be on my own, but it taught me about self-reliance. It it told me um, that I'd have to rely on my traditions and heritage as a Black person in America, as well as a a descendant of Haitians. So what I did was um, I went to University of Chicago and I did what was, it's an an old school thing, Uh, not everyone does this. But I, I pulled the alumni book at Morehouse and found anyone who was taking the path that I was taking, or rather how I was taking what they had done before, following their footsteps. And there was this one person named Ira Day Augustine, Augustine Reed, and he had gone to Morehouse to Chicago. And so I went ahead and read everything I could about him as he went to Chicago, and he then went to University of Pittsburgh. And he was my guiding light by following wow. the footsteps of his experiences and learning the times that when I was lonely at Chicago, and I was, that I was doing something just what he was doing. And so um, that's what Morehouse did for me. It was not only just the, the environment, not just the it being a safe haven to think out loud about what it means to be a Black person in America. But what it did for me was realize that people had blazed a trail. And it, though it may not be perfect, because it's not like I already read did everything, you know, I did everything like he did, but it gave me a path. It gave me a path that was blazed. And it was something that no one was giving me. I mean, I wasn't getting it from a Chicago. I wasn't getting it from a, you know, from University of Pittsburgh later on or any of the schools that I went to um, besides an HBCU. So it was critical for me. That is such a remarkable story. You know, every time I talk to you, I learn something um, different. But this was just thinking about you had college credits coming from high school and no one told you that you could go in with those yeah. credits and you know you would go in as a transfer because you had so many credits well first of all you're the per- first person i've met that had 72 credits coming out of high school that part well a lot There's of a number of credits okay. yeah a, a number of credit hours so listen i mean i had nothing i had some ap courses but as you know as far as that but that is pretty remarkable but i also think what i've heard is that you looked for someone that said who can i you know, follow, follow their lead. They've, they've, they've paved the way for me. Who can I follow their lead? And that Mm -hmm. became your North star. And so that is why this conversation is so critically important because I think the three of you will be the North star for the next generation. So thank you so much for um, sharing that remarkable story. Doc, what do you, what do you think about that? Oh my goodness. I'm I'm looking, I have the pleasure of being able to see him on, on, on camera and I'm looking like wow this this guy he amazes me every time I hear his story we spent time together you know on the trip but still 
I'm blown away by by that. And and what a, what a powerful story to encourage someone coming behind you as well. Yeah, appreciate yeah. that. So it's, it's very very powerful. Wow, my goodness, that was I, I tell you, Doc, that was just powerful. What a story that we have heard. And and I tell you what. Dr. D's background, every time he he has something to say, he just drops the mic. All the time, all the time. I mean, he's just absolutely incredible. And um, again, just so humble about who he is. But um, these stories, just the whole conversation to this point has just been remarkable. I tell you, it really has. And, uh, you know, if it wasn't for the sake of time, we would just keep on going. But we knew that we can only put this in bite sized pieces. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we hope and uh, that you have heard something that is going to cause you to come back for part two, because I'm telling you, we really need you to understand the gravity of this uh, moment in history for uh, black mm-hmm. and brown people. And and you can't miss it. As I said, Doc, I, I was kind of surprised that I didn't realize until I read the dissent that it affects our health. It affects our, our abilities to buy homes. It affects our economic status, just as, as many, many other, other things. It's just not about skin color and getting into a university. Oh, absolutely. And I think that we're starting to see the aftermath and, you know, people will talk about, well, why should they? And so I think part two absolutely is going to be, I, I know it's going to be equally as remarkable. So I'm looking forward to it. What about you? Oh, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to it. And, and ladies and gentlemen, we hope that you will come back for part two because we haven't even begun to scratch the surface. And I know that our guests had some powerful uh, wisdom and nuggets to share with you. So, uh, you know, I'm hoping you'll come back and just look for part two. It'll be posted soon. But until we do that, I want you to know that we want you to stay strong and know that we have not been set back because we are a powerful people and we will overcome. As the song says, we shall overcome. What about you, Doc? Oh, absolutely. One day and I'm hoping soon. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So with that, my friends, we say until we meet again, stay strong and may God keep you and bless you.